I do want to say, before we get into the Word this morning, of course I want you to pay attention and engage every week, but especially this week, if I could, if I could have you just grasp what we're going to talk about this week, I think it would be very, very significant. That's one thing I want to say. Second thing I want to say is, I don't usually, I'm not a yelling parent that yells at my kids. I don't usually want to yell at my kids. Sometimes I do, unfortunately. But this morning, I'm going to feel like I'm yelling at my kids as I'm talking to you. Because it, it is a hard word from the Word of God. And I'm going to try to be as gentle and kind about it as I can. Uh, but it, it's, there's no soft way to take it. And so you're just going to have to take it. And my assumption is you want to be here. Most of you... 95% of you are not forced to be here. Maybe some of you who are kids, your parents made you come, right? Most of you, you're here, so it's your fault, all right? You're here. You're here to worship. You're here to get into the Word. And since we go through the books of the Bible, whatever comes up, comes up, and we just kind of engage it together. That's what we're going to do. But I need the Lord to impress it upon our hearts as we, we study His, His Word. Let, let's go ahead and pray first. Lord, ultimately, your, your word, your gospel is, is, is grace to us and love to us through Jesus. And sometimes that comes across very, very um, hard passages, difficulties. And, and sometimes if we're not careful, it's going to sound like you hate us or it's harsh in our ears. Uh, but Lord, may we see hard truths and exhortations as opportunities to repent, find grace, and move on. May we not be crushed where we run away. And so, God, I'm asking you to do something very significant right here among your people. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to start by showing you a picture. This picture has kind of haunted me for a while. It's a picture of an iceberg. As you'll see, that the tip is above the water, but I don't know if you can see it so well in this picture, but the bulk of the iceberg is hidden underneath the water. Now, your outward life, just to picture it this way, your outward life is the tip, what we can see, what your friends can see, your family, uh, people you work with or go to school with. That's the one-tenth of your life that's visible. But the nine-tenths of your life, uh, what we would call your heart, is below the surface. We can't see that, obviously. God can see that. We can see hints of it. But most of what's going on in your life is below the surface, your heart. Now, the reality is that on the one-tenth that is showing above the surface, what we can see is that you have your life together. You, you look good. You, some of you actually dress good today, right? And you, you seem kind of healthy, and you, and you seem happy, like things are going great. But sometimes the nine-tenths of what's going on below in our heart, we can be messed up. We can have issues. We can have sins that we're, we're not just, just, just bombarding. We have a lot of problems. But the good news is, if you realize of the nine-tenths that you're messed up, that you have problems, you have issues, you've come to the right place. It's good to be here. God welcomes sinners who knows what's going on, who want to repent and receive forgiveness and grow in grace and godliness. You're, you're in the right place. But here is where it gets scary. And this is why I've I just been begging God this week for every single one of you to grasp this scary part of life, and it's this. What is really scary to me and should be scary to you is people who are clueless about what's going on 
below the surface. In fact, they may be a little clueless about what's going on above as well, but clueless to what's happening inside. They are self-deceived. There was once this man named John DuPont who modeled this self-deception. He's, pra- he's portrayed in the movie Foxcatcher by Steve Carell as the lead, lead character on The Office. But he portrays John DuPont, a very self-deceived man. Maybe you know this story. Extremely wealthy and lots of money. And he had an estate. And on his estate, he brought in the U.S. wrestling men's team because he was really into wrestling. And while he was there, he saw himself as a coach of sorts of this wrestling team. But in reality, he knew very little about wrestling. In fact, he tried to pump himself up as a knowledgeable man about many things. And he would pay people to affirm him in his greatness. The movie shows him actually engaging in wrestling himself and paying off other wrestlers to let him win so he can get a trophy. In fact, he had a trophy room where he would sit and look at all of his accolades and bring people in to talk about how great he was. But he was just self-deceived. And he was filled with many jealousies. And in 1996, this is a true story, by the way, 1996, he ended up murdering uh, one of the people that were part of the U.S. wrestling team. He's put in jail, and he has since died. And when that movie was over, there wasn't very many people in the theater. Most of you probably haven't seen it. It's not a very, uh, you know, box office hit or anything. So we're in the theater. There's about five of us in there. When it's over, there's this older gentleman sitting in front of me, and he says, That was very disturbing. It was disturbing. Here's a man through the whole movie is just self-deceived, paying other people to help deceive him. And then he murders someone. And then he goes to jail and then he dies. And and it is disturbing when you see people who are self-deceived and then they self-destruct. Very disturbing. And you can, you can see people who are kind of self-deceived in the way they act and that they're clueless to, to what they're doing. They're clueless to, to the airs they're portraying, right? You, you see that. But what's really disturbing is not only when it's in other people, it's really disturbing when it's also in our own lives. I, if I raise a hand, I say, how many of you are self-deceived no one would raise their hand because most people don't think they're self-deceived, right? Like, surely the person sitting next to you is self-deceived, but not you. You can't see your own arrogance. You can't see your own pride. You, you can't see your own issues. And, and that, to me, my brothers and sisters, that is scary. That is so scary to be acting a certain way, doing certain things. Others may see it. God sees it. And you, clueless. This is what we're going to do this morning. Think about the tip of the iceberg, that part of your life that's visible, one-tenth of your life. And think about the iceberg, that nine-tenths that is below the surface that others don't see, your heart. What I would like to have happen in my life and in your life is there to be more consistency of the two. More consistency in seeing them 
walking in line with the will of God and submitting to the ways of Jesus. Not perfect on this earth, but progressing in holiness, consistency. People who realize we have issues. People who realize they have faults and sins they need to deal with. Not self-deceive people, but others who realize, hey, we have stuff going on that we need to grow in sanctification and holiness. And, and kicking out the self-deception. Well, like I said, we're going through books of the Bible in our church, and this morning we find ourselves back in 1 Samuel. If you want to go ahead and turn to 1 Samuel, we're in 1 Samuel 15. We're looking again at King Saul. King Saul was one of the most self-deceived persons in the Bible. We could call King Saul John DuPont. He is a deceived man. And in this story this morning, he actually thought he was obeying the word of God when he was in full-blown violation and rebellion. So let's jump in. And it's a, it's a Sunday morning bonus. You didn't know this. We're going to study a whole chapter. Bonus for you. All right. Here we go. 1 Samuel 15, starting in verse 1. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. In Israel, the king was not the ultimate authority, but God was, and God communicated to his people through the prophets. And one of the prophets, priest combination on the scene here is Samuel. Samuel is going to speak the words from the Lord to Saul that Saul was supposed to obey. Now I'm going to read two verses here to you that are going to be disturbing, especially for us. So I'm going to read them and then explain them. Please don't freak out. Look at verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. This is, this is shocking, very, very striking for us to hear that God wants to wipe out an entire people group. When you think of genocide or the extermination of groups of people, we obviously should shudder in horror. Yet here is a clear command to wipe out the Amalekites as a manifestation of the judgment of God. Why would God want this to happen? Well, about 300 years earlier, the Amalekites ambushed Israel as they were uh, coming out of Egypt and fought against them as they were wandering in the desert. And as they were wandering in the desert, some of the, the weak and the sick ones were lagging behind. The Amalekites came out, ambushed them, and killed them. God remembers this. In fact, he said back in Deuteronomy that one day he vowed vengeance upon them. And now 300 years later, the Amalekites are still evil. And God was going to use his people as an instrument of punishment to wipe out the Amalekites. It is God's prerogative, ultimately, to judge all of us, to judge the nations, and one day he will do that. But here in the Old Testament, we have an instance of him punishing a people here on this earth. Now, before we we go on, I want to make sure you understand this theologically and practically, and as far as the governments are concerned, This gives no nation or government warrant to do this today. Israel 
was the covenant people of God back then, authorized by God to do this. No nation today has such a covenant where they are authorized to do this. In addition, you would think, okay, well, the church, we are the people of God under King Jesus. Are we authorized to do this? And the answer is no, for we do not battle with real swords and with spears and, and bullets and, and weaponry. We don't, we don't battle like that. We engage in a spiritual battle. The physical one's coming in the future when King Jesus returns to this earth, but our battle now is spiritual. But I don't want you to think that in the Old Testament, God's just going around and wiping out all these nations. For he also shows mercy on nations, as we see a glimpse of in verses 4 through 6. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, go, depart. Go down from among Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. Did you see that? God is showing mercy to the Kenites. They are a good example of his mercy. They show kindness to Israel in the past, and in return, God is going to show kindness to them. Saul gives them a heads up, get out of the way. We're targeting the Amalekites. And now we have the marching orders of Saul, go and wipe out everything, including the animals. Let's see what Saul does, verse 7. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt, and he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. Uh Uh-oh. This is a big deal. Saul did not obey. He spared Agag, the king. Perhaps he wanted a royal trophy of sorts. In addition, Saul also spared some of the animals. He destroyed most of it, but not all of it. I want to make sure you understand this, all right? You ready for this? Partial obedience is disobedience. How many parents tell your kids that? Partial obedience is disobedience. But tell your kid, go into your room and clean the room. They come out and they said, I made my bed. That's not obedience. That's disobedience. Partial obedience is disobedience. If you're driving along and pulled over by a policeman for speeding, what are you going to say to him? I've been going the speed limit half the time. No, you're getting a ticket. Partial obedience is disobedience. If your professor wants you to write a 20-page paper, 10 pages won't cut it. If you think it will, give it a shot. See what kind of grades you get. Partial obedience is disobedience. Saul flat out did not obey. God saw it. Samuel saw it. Look at the response from God and Samuel. Verse 10. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried out to the Lord all night. Isn't it interesting when the Bible says that God regrets stuff? It's like... 
how can God have regrets? Does he not know what's going to happen in the future? He's like, oh no, what happened? That's not what it's saying here. God is sovereign. He knows what's going to happen. But the Bible shows us God's emotions, right? He is regretting that he put Saul in this position to be king. And now that Saul has disobeyed, God responds with regret. And it's interesting that God's regretting, and now Samuel is angry, and he's crying out to God all night. Very appropriate, all right? So make sure you see in the picture here. God is regretting, and Samuel is angry. Can you guess what Saul is doing? This is ridiculous. Look what Saul's doing, verse 12. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. Saul is John DuPont in the fox catcher in his trophy room. Saul is clueless. He sets up this monument to his victory, his great victory. He is so self-deceived. He is clueless. He thinks, I just had a great victory. Let me create this big old trophy and just celebrate my victory with me. Samuel is going to push back. And this is, this is great. So look at, look at verse, uh, verse 13. So Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be to be the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Clueless. Verse 14. And Samuel said, this is so funny. What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? If Saul has obeyed, then why does Samuel hear sheep? Why does he hear oxen? And Saul's like, oh, yeah. (laughs) Well, let me tell you about that. Verse 15. Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. He's saying, well, let me explain to you these noises you're hearing. Well, we actually kept some of the sheep and some of the oxen, only the best parts, because we are actually going to sacrifice them to the Lord. We're going to bring this great worship to God. That's why we kept all these animals. So what you have, you have have Saul explaining and justifying his actions. And he's saying what we did was appropriate. Have you ever met anybody where you kind of call them out on something they're doing wrong or maybe a sin they're engaging in and they they want to explain or justify what they're doing? Maybe they're over-explaining what they're doing. Uh, Here's a common one we have at our church. And uh, since a lot of you are visitors, uh, this may be applicable. <laughs> I'm going to tell you anyway. This is, this is kind of a, a common occurrence in our church. I hate that it is, but it's just a reality in our day and age. Here's, here's what happens, all right? This is going to be so applicable right now. That's, anyway, I'm just going to tell you. People show up to our church, and they are, they're in love with each other. They're going to get married, and they're living together. Very, very popular in our culture to do that. And so Christians, unfortunately, mimic the world in this area. And uh, we'll say, hey, you know, you shouldn't be living together before marriage. It's, you know, it's temptations for sexual immorality. In fact, living together is just a hint of sexual immorality as far as others are concerned. And then this is what they say to me. In fact, they should just, uh, you can say this back to me. This is, cause this is what everybody says, all right? This is what they say. 
Oh, pastor, thanks for bringing that up. Um, we just want to let you know, pastor, that we, we're, we're not having sex for the most part. And we're just living with each other for financial reasons because we have student loan and debt. And it's so expensive for her to live here and the middle over here because we're about to be married in six months. It just makes sense. We've got to get an apartment anyway, so let's go ahead and get it together. And we can, we can save money for our, you know, we want to start the wedding off right. And we want to start our marriage off right. We want to have all this money saved. And guess what, Pastor? We can now drive to church together. I'll tell you this. If you are over-explaining why you do something and you have to make it even kind of sound religious and you got to throw in this and and throw in that and do some verbal and mental gymnastics to justify uh, your sin, and if anybody ever tries to do this to you, this this is what you should say to them in response. I hear the bleeding of sheep. And the lowing of oxen. Let's keep going. Verse 16. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop! (laughs) I like that. Stop! I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoils, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. He continues to reemphasize that all the animals taken were taken for worship. Now we come to one of the most classic lines in the Bible that you may have heard of, but you never knew where it was at in the Bible. You may have it on your wall, but you're not quite sure what part of the Bible it's from. So see if you can guess what is one of the most famous lines of the Bible in verses 22 and 23. See if you can pick it up. And That's right, Tasha. Tasha just gave it to you. So if you didn't listen, check again. Verse 22. And Samuel said... Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, there it is. To obey is better than sacrifice. And to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as a sin of divination, a presumption as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. Hone in on that, that famous line. To obey is better than sacrifice. Obedience is better than formal worship. God totally wants your worship and your praise to go to him, but not if you're not going to obey the voice of the Lord. Saul thought he could spare some animals for worship, but God commanded him to destroy it all. 
above the water, Saul looked great, but he was ultimately disobeying the voice of God. And I want to kind of give you this, this kind of this, this saying. Here we go. Saul was using worship as a cover-up for his disobedience. Saul was using worship as a cover-up for his disobedience. God is always looking for obedience above formalities and worship. Your obedience is a form of worship. But we can get up here and we can continue to sing and worship with these instruments and our voices. But if disobedience is hanging around, sin we do not need to deal with and we do not want to deal with, sin we put off, God is being very clear. Do not use your worship as a cover-up for disobedience. Now, this is where things get a little, little hard for me. Not really. Hard for you to hear, not for me to say. I'm going to go ahead and say it. The New Testament is full of stuff like this. The New Testament is overflowing with this kind of idea of don't go through the formalities of worship unless you're planning on obeying. We're not talking about perfection here. We're just talking about do not ignore areas of your life of a blatant, habitual sin and while going through forms of worship. Don't do that. Now, here's some New Testament examples, so stick with me. There's four I'm going to give, but there's many more. The first comes from the book of James. In the book of James, people are going through formalities of worship while they were neglecting the poor. And James is very clear in the New Testament, and the Bible is very clear about caring for the poor. And if you don't care about the poor, you can go through formal worship all day long, but you're using it as a cover-up for disobedience. And then this is what James says, all right? This is what he says. He's talking about worship. Anyone in here wants to be religious, According to James, how do you express your religion? He says, by caring for widows and orphans in their affliction. So if they're going through the forms of worship in the New Testament church, ignoring the poor, ignoring widows, ignoring orphans, then their worship is a cover-up for their disobedience. Okay, let me give you another one. Also in the book of James... James says that there are some people in the church that are not controlling their tongues. They're, they're talking bad about other people. They're, they're worshiping God with their mouths, and now the same mouths are, are, are causing other people to stumble by the words they're saying, maybe behind their backs, maybe to their face, right? And James says this, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Do you hear that word, deceives? If you think you're worshiping God and yet you're dogging others consistently and habitually, you're deceiving your heart and your religion is worthless. Well, let's take it to Jesus. Remember what Jesus says, if you're coming before the altar and you're making your gift, you're going to worship the Lord. And while you're there, you remember that you and somebody else have some issues and you need to be reconciled. He says you need to leave your gift there and go and be reconciled and then come back and worship. Do you have some tension with someone else that you have not asked for forgiveness? You've not done your part as far as, and we can't make everybody, you know, love us and us love them. I mean, we can't do it, but we can do our part. God does not want us coming before formal worship while ignoring those relationships that we have done harm to others. And let me give you one more. This is a bonus for all the husbands in here. All the husbands in here who pray, I hope it's every husband in here, if you pray to God and ask him for things in prayer, 
and yet you are disrespectful of your wife, you ready for this? God will not answer your prayer. Yikes! <laughs> you can be like doing your quiet time, Lord, do this, do this, God, move, and you're dissing your wife. God's like, I'm not going to hear you. That's all over the Bible. To obey is better than sacrifice. Do not use your formalities of worship as a cover-up for disobedience. I know that's a hard word, but that is a good word. Let's continue. Let's continue. Verse 24. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore... Please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. That, that kind of sounds like repentance, doesn't it? <laughs> Not really. It's actually blame shifting. Do you see it? Saul's like, yeah, I did something wrong, but it wasn't me. The people made me do it. It's blame shifting. And blame shifting started in the garden. Remember, uh, Adam blamed Eve and Eve blamed the serpent and Saul's blaming the people and you. Who, who do you blame? I, the Bible just called out the husbands in here about praying and dissing their wives, right? And so I, I'm guessing that some of the husbands in here may say, okay, okay, I know I don't always treat my wife the best, and I need to repent of that, but my wife, have you ever met my wife? She drives me crazy. Is that really repentance? Is it really repentance when you know you need to reconcile with someone else and yet you keep explaining about how messed up they are? I think there is no true repentance as long as there is an explanation. I could be wrong on that, but I think there's no true repentance as long as there is an explanation. Saul said, yeah, I did wrong, but it was the people. Husbands, you say, yeah, I'm doing wrong, but it's my wife. If you say, I am sorry, but... Will you please forgive me? But if you talk anymore about asking sorry or forgiveness, that's not repentance. Saul doesn't want to be forgiven. He just wants to save political face. He just wants Samuel to come with him so he can look good above the surface. Look at Samuel's response, verse 26 and 29. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have re rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day, and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Oh, I like that. Can you see the irony there? It was pointed out to me by Robert Chisholm, one of my uh, professors in seminary. He said, first you have God regretting that he made Saul king. And now he says, he's not going to regret getting rid of him. That's awesome. That is great irony. But look, let's look and see what, what Samuel uh, is going to do, right? Saul's begging um, Samuel to come with him. Samuel's like, no, I'm not going to come. And then Samuel finally gives in and goes. And then, just kind of pay attention, we're going to see the only time the word hack is used in the Bible. 
I know you're wondering. We're going to see the word hack. Let's see it. Verse 30. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me, that I may bow before the Lord your God. Samuel gives in, turns back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. But this is why Samuel went. Watch this. Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. He obeys. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. What a terrible story. I was talking to someone after the first service. He said, oh, man, I, I totally, totally relate to Saul. And I looked this brother in the face, and I said, yes, but you are not rejected. Saul is rejected. If you find yourself broken over your sin and repentant, when stuff come to you, you are a child of God. You've you got the Spirit in you, convicting you. And are you with me? Praise God, we don't follow King Saul. We follow King Jesus, who pleases the Father. He doesn't give partial obedience, but full obedience. Totally accepted by the Father. And on this earth, lived without sin as king, died, bearing the wrath of God, buried, rose again. And now, now the, the call goes out to everyone here. Repent of your disobedience. Repent of your partial obedience. Repent of your, your worship games. Repent of going through the motions. And you can find forgiveness in King Jesus. Even if you feel like King Saul. Those who are in Christ are not rejected. But what do you do with this chapter? It's kind of depressing. What do you do with it? For those of you who go to Kellogg or are in some leadership program, maybe you're always thinking about leadership and you can get a stamp out and your stamp says leadership fail and you want to stamp it down, leadership fail. But I think it's more than that. I think this is a life fail. Saul was clueless and self-deceived. And I think one of the reasons why this is here is because it's a warning. The Bible is consistently telling us that sin is deceitful. In fact, it says our hearts are deceitful. And no matter who you are, no matter how much of the Bible that you've memorized, no matter how long you've been a Christian, you can still be deceived. And that's why the Bible keeps saying, be on your guard. Watch out. You know, Satan's brown like a roaring lion. He's trying to deceive you. He's trying to lie to you. Sin is deceitful. Your hearts are deceitful. There's this constant idea of not being deceived, self-deceived. So the question is, well, how, how are we going to supposed to be on guard? I'm going to show you the picture of this, this, this iceberg again. Because you can be looking good above the water, one-tenth. How can you not be self-deceived with the nine-tenths that are going on in your heart, your thoughts, your fears, 
your anxieties, your worries, your greed, your lust? How, how can you not be deceiving yourself right now? Maybe you sang all the songs that we sung here this morning, but basically it's just a cover-up for your disobedience. That's terrible, right? You don't want that. I assume you don't want that. So how can we be on guard against self-deception? I'm just going to finish up by giving you a few ways, and maybe it's helpful. I think it might be. Here's how you can guard against self-deception. First thing is this. Encourage one another so that you're not overtaken by sins of deceitfulness. Fellowship is for encouragement. Hanging out with other brothers and sisters is for encouragement. When I go to my ethos community, I want my guys and girls in there to say, look, you're being foolish, you're being deceived. You need to be around Christian fellowship. And I would say this, if you're not around other brothers and sisters, you are probably deceived right now in some way. In fact, you may be avoiding fellowship because you like your sin. You need to be around other brothers and sisters because they can see your blind spots, they can see what's going on, and they can encourage you. So first thing is be around other people that know the Lord. And the second thing is to pray. Chances are that most of you love Psalm 139. And you love the very last part of Psalm 139, right? Search me, O God. Know my hearts. See if there is some crazy stuff going on inside of me and lead me in the way of everlasting. Great prayer to pray. Really? Do you believe that? Do you really want to pray that? Search me, O God. Where am I deceived? Show me, tell me, reveal it to me. Third area, pay attention to where you may be justifying or over-explaining your actions. Are there any areas of your life you're, you're really trying to over-explain why you do something? You really want someone else to understand why you're doing something and, and they're just going to say, look, man, I, I hear sheep, I hear, I hear some oxen. You're trying to lie to me. And the last one may be the most controversial is this. No worship or quiet time until obedience. And you go, really? Yeah, really? Because that's what the whole chapter is about. Did you pay attention to that? Can you imagine, you know, singing here and then waking up tomorrow morning, open up the Bible and getting in the Word and praying and totally ignoring areas of your life? I mean, let's just, let's just take, for example, all right? Let's just go really extreme because I just explained something. Let's just say I was committing adultery. And I'm preaching to you right now. And I'm going to wake up tomorrow morning and I'm going to do my quiet time every single day. And I'm going to preach to you again next week. Would you be cool with that? Yeah? No. Now, God's obviously not going to be cool with that. But chances are, there's stuff going on in your life, maybe not, not extreme, that you're just ignoring. And you're worshiping right here. Yeah? And you're doing the quiet time. And you're ignoring it. To obey is better than sacrifice. Now, I want to make sure, for those of you in here, that if you don't know the Lord, in some sense, keep coming, right? <laughs> keep investigating. But there are others in here, this is where I just want to go and push it over the edge here. There are others in here who actually think that 
you're a Christian because you're here this morning and you're really not. As a teenager, I was totally immoral, foul mouth. Uh, I was a thief. But guess what? The back of my car said, Jesus is Lord. Because everybody in Texas has that on the back of their car. <laughs> said, Jesus is Lord. I had Christian t-shirts. I would go to Christian concerts. I saw Striper. You don't even know what that is. It's all right. I, I mean, I would go to the concert. I would organize Christian uh, events. I would go to youth group. I didn't know the Lord. I did the formalities in worship. I had my, I, in, on my walls, in my room, were pictures of Jesus all over the place. I did not know the Lord. I was self-deceived. And there may be someone in here like me who, who was growing up in church, and maybe you're here because it's just what you do, the formalities of worship, but you don't really know the Lord. And chances are, after this morning, you probably know that. And that's okay. Now's the time to repent and find forgiveness. And if you're a Christian and you've been covering up certain areas of your life, ah, now's the time to be free and to receive forgiveness. It's time to, to let the top of your life that everybody sees match up more with the, the bottom of your life where there's consistency, not perfection, but more consistency. This is a great place to be. This is a place of the cross. This is a place of forgiveness. Don't just say, hey, I'm fine on the outside, but go below. See what's going on in your heart. Set it on Jesus in obedience to him. Let's pray. Lord, may today be the day we're done with the games. May today be the day we're done with covering up sin or going to the motions of worship, of quiet time, of whatever else. May today be the day we come to you and find forgiveness. We're about to come to the Lord's Supper, and the Lord's Supper is a, is a great place where we can say, look, we are sinners, repentant sinners to find forgiveness in Jesus. May we not be like the Corinthians there playing games within the church, going through worships, and some of them were facing the discipline and the judgment of God, getting sick, and some were dying as going through the formalities of worship. May we not do that. And Lord, let some of us know that though we may feel like Saul and relate to Saul, we are not cast off and rejected like Saul. In Christ, we are forgiven and loved. Impress that truth upon us now. Give us a spirit of repentance and to come to you for forgiveness. In Jesus' name.